66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and it can take 10 lifetimes to, to delve deep into God's words. And let me just ask you, as you recall and go back to November when Ronaldo was teaching on literary genres or just your own understanding of genres, um, just to put it out there, just shout it out, what are some of the main literary genres in the Word of God? Poetry. Poetry. And what are some of the books that contain poetry? Psalms. Psalms. Yep. What's that? Solomon. Yep. Song of Songs or Song of, yep. Even non-poetic books contain aspects of poetry. You might find that in, you know, even in narratives or in portions of the New Testament, you might find some poetic moments. What other genres do we see in the Bible? Prophecy. What are some books of prophecy? Daniel, Revelation, the 12 minor prophets, the larger prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. Much of the book, I think about one-third of the book or so, is prophecy. And so it's a very, very important genre. What else? We got two here, poetry and po prophecy. Law. Law. Who said that? Who? Kathy. Oh, Kathy, right in front of me. I'm sorry, Kathy. Yeah, Exodus, Leviticus, the Pentateuch, much of the Old Testament is law. Right. Law, prophecy, poetry. What else? Wisdom. Yes, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, parts of James, wisdom. What else? History. Yeah, lots of history. The book of Acts we're going to be looking at. Even parts of the Gospels are history. Genesis is history. Judges, First, Second Samuel, and so forth. Let's keep going. Narrative. Yeah, and we're going to look at that more as we especially look at the Old Testament. And listen to, uh, it's been great that the elders have been going through 1 Samuel. We're going to continue into 2 Samuel, which contains a lot of narrative. While it is in a story-like form, narrative contains history. There's a purpose to narrative. There's theology it's not necessarily like reading a fictional book that we're used to today, though it contains certain elements like plot and setting and resolution and so forth. Yeah. Anything else in terms of genre? Gospels. We're going to be looking at the Gospels, which is similar to biography, but slightly different. Apocalyptic. We said prophecy, but there are even apocalyptic elements to Scripture like Ezekiel and Revelation and Zechariah and so forth. Now, all of these genres is what makes the Bible a fascinating book to read. You think about a movie that you like to watch. What, what are certain elements in a movie that make it a fascinating movie to watch? You know, some of the best movies, yeah, Andrew. Character development. Character development, right. And just think of a movie that might have all of the genres in it. We might say, man, that was a good movie. It had drama, comedy, action, and even a little bit of romance. Right, And this is what makes it interesting to read the Bible, all the various genres. You know, God is a creative God. When you look out at creation, we see variety in nature, in the universe, in the world. The same thing with the word of God. Thankfully, he didn't just write to us in a legal code. Right? How many of you like reading legal documents? Anybody? Nighttime, you just pull out maybe some medical documents or maybe you're in a trial of some sort. You just want to, you know, read the 600 pages of fine print, you know. Well, yeah, there are legal documents. There, there is law in the Word of God, but thankfully there are all these other genres. And knowing the unique details and features of each genre will assist you in a healthier and more accurate reading, interpreting, and understanding of Scripture. For example, the way you read and understand, say, poetry such as the Psalms will differ from how you read um, and grasp the law, Leviticus. It's good. We have to read Leviticus. 
Leviticus helps us understand much of the Old Testament and books like Hebrews. But you're going to read it differently and interpret it differently than you would the psalm. Psalm is poetry. There's parallelism in there. There might be some rhyme. There are metaphors and figures of speech, not as much as you would read in Leviticus. But while each one of the genres that we have to understand is equally God's word, we have to understand that each genre is important. Each section of scripture is critical, and we cannot skip one over the other. But we have to understand the distinctive characteristics of those genres. Now, you might be thinking, why do we have to get so nitpicky when it comes to genres? Why do I have to understand poetry? When, when, when we were in seminary, I remember reading an entire book on poetry from the Psalms and how to properly understand the Psalms. It opened up my world. I'm in the doctorate program right now at TMS, and we had to read a two, 300-page book on the art of biblical poetry. It was fascinating. Some of it was dry, but I read the Word of God a little bit differently now because of my exposure to Hebrew poetry, and so forth. Well, let me give you an illustration here on why we have to understand the genres. Think about the different forms of communication that we come in contact with every single day. What are some forms of communication that we're all involved with every single day? Verbal, Verbal. right, oral. You know, we talk to each other, we communicate, we have dialogue. Sometimes it's a monologue, right? Some of us talk more than others, maybe, but it's verbal. We use our mouth. What else? Letters and notes. Mm -hmm. Letters and notes. Sadly, a lost art today. We don't write a lot of letters or notes. What else? Email. Yeah, email. That's also becoming kind of a lost form of communication. People are using text messages or tweets or, I'm not even familiar, I'm more old school, you know? I, I like to talk, I like calling someone on the phone. Yeah, what else? Think about all the multiple forms of media out there these days, from Twitter to Facebook to, what else? Recipes, you read recipes, you read fiction, you read nonfiction. So you read each form, one of these genres, different from the other. For example, the way you read a recipe for cookies is different than how you would uh, read a fictional book. A fictional book has plot, has a setting, has character development, has an ending, has action. You don't read a recipe the same way you would read fiction. At least I hope you wouldn't. And when you read fiction, you play by the rules of fiction. You have to understand the elements of that fictional book as opposed to reading the steps in a recipe and the timing and the different ingredients that you have to put in. Now, some of you might like a recipe more than you like fictional books because you like the outcome better, right? You would rather have a cake rather than finishing a good fictional book. But at the same time, do you get my drift? You, you have to read those with um, different rules in, to be able to understand them better. You read a, a legal document different than how you, like a will, differently than how you read a love letter from a spouse or from a um, fiance or something like that. Like I was saying before, you wouldn't read a legal document over and over as you would a love letter from a spouse that you just want to you know, absorb and I love what they're writing and I want to just keep reading this and I feel connected and you read it differently. Same thing is with the Bible. Okay, with, so with all of that said, let's dive into the New Testament letters. The way you read the New Testament letters, the epistles, is going to be a little bit different than how you will read poetry, poetry prophecy, the gospels, and so forth. Now, like Kathy said, notes, writing letters, cards, um, there used to be a time when letter writing was more common, when we did not have these 
various electronic forms that we have today, um, such as Twitter and Facebook and direct messaging and emails. I mean, I remember, and I, I don't know about you, but who here likes to receive a letter in the mail? Yeah, everybody. Why is that? I mean, it's personal. It's addressed to us, right? You see the handwriting of someone and you can immediately connect to them, even more so than if it was typed out from a computer. I, you know, I encourage you all, if you haven't written a letter lately and sending it through the USPS, through snail mail, write someone a letter. It's just an amazing thing that we don't do as much anymore these days. Um, but sadly, letter writing is not as common today as it was not long ago or even very long ago. Um, I love reading missionary biographies. I love reading about William Carey or Adoniram Judson or Hudson Taylor. And one thing that strikes me is the only way, if at all, they could communicate to their loved ones who are thousands of miles away was through a written letter. And it would often take weeks, if not months, for that letter to arrive to where they sent it. And you can imagine the joy of the recipient of that letter getting the only form of communication that they have received in ages from their loved one. Um, if you haven't read... Speaking of letters, um, a book, it's, it's in letter form, but it's now in a book, is Samuel Rutherford, who was a pastor in the 1600s in Scotland. He was a devoted, a committed pastor who, because of his theology, was exiled, was banished from his um, pastorate, and he was many, many miles away, and the only way he could communicate and continue to shepherd his people was through letter form. In, you, you, it's just Samuel Rutherford's letters, and you can just read his just love for his people, and you can just feel his heartbeat as he writes these letters. Um, yesterday, during Bob's funeral, Ronaldo was talking about the letters that Bob Elstrom wrote, and Ronaldo read some of those, and you just got a sense of his life and what, uh, what was the most important thing in his life from his letters. So letters are important. They reveal often who we are and what we want to communicate to people. I used to write letters to Jyoti before we got married. I remember before I'd even have an iPhone you know, a lot, of the, a lot of young people today, by the time they're 10 years old, they have an iPhone and they're texting and sending messages. I wrote a paper letter to Jyoti before we got married about our commitment to the Lord and how we're going to have to follow him wherever he leads us. And I remember writing that letter late at night and giving it to her. And do we still have that letter? I don't even know if it's still in existence. Maybe archaeologists will find it hundreds of years from now and put it in a museum. Um, but letters were common in the ancient world. Letters were common. This is how communication happened. This is why we gravitate toward the New Testament letters. The personality of them we can relate to. They're, they're simpler. They're they, they easier to follow. We, we can read them. They're more direct. They're shorter. And check this out. Out of the 27 New Testament books, 21 of them are letters, epistles, epistoloi, which means messages. So one-thirds about of the Bible is in letter form. This is why we have to get really familiar with them. Think about those who wrote letters. Paul wrote the most, number one. He wrote 13 letters. Then we have two from Peter, who was also an apostle, three from John, plus Revelation, which has some letter-like qualities to it. One from Jude. We have the anonymous author of the book of Hebrews. We have James. And the rest of the New Testament, four Gospels. We have history, which is Acts. And we have prophecy, which makes up most of Revelation. But a lot of the Bible is in epistolary form, letters, and scholars like to divide the letters up into two categories. We don't have to do this. 
All of it is the word of God. But because Paul was the most prominent figure of the apostles in terms of exposure to the Gentiles and the Jews and writing the most in the New Testament, um, they like to divide them up between Pauline letters and the general or universal epistles, which, which are anything other than the Pauline epistles, such as James, First and Second Peter, John, Hebrews, and so forth. But Paul dominates, for the most part, in the New Testament letter writing because he was traveling all over the known world back then and was pastoring and shepherding and planting uh, numerous churches. And then we have prison epistles, We have epistles that Paul wrote directly from prison, Philippians, Colossians, and so forth, Philemon. And then we have the pastoral epistles, which we have a church have been going through, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Some epistles are very lengthy, like the book of Romans, which contains over 7,000 words. And then we have Philemon, which is a very brief, though filled with so much truth, but only contains a few hundred words. So there's a lot of diversity and variety included in the epistles. You just can't get enough of the letters. I can't. I'm on like a rotating schedule of the epistles. I read through the New Testament, go back, start over. Read through it again, it's like a typewriter. Jing, you know, I just can't get enough of them. But basically what we have to understand is that all of the letters our God's word, whether it's Paul, Peter, James, the anonymous author of Hebrews, whoever it is, God chose to reveal much of his word through personal correspondence. Through personal correspondence. Thankfully, you know, a lot of people would prefer this, but God knew what we need in terms of when he revealed his word to us. He didn't write a message in the sky. He didn't send angels to us, though he did in some very unique circumstances like Gabriel with Mary and Joseph and and so forth. Um, You know, he's not speaking to us in an audible voice. He chose the very common method of communication of letter writing. Letter writing. It's pretty cool. Um, because we're all familiar with it. Almost every one of your hands went up when I asked, who loves receiving a letter? Well, thankfully, contained in God's word, we have 21 letters. Though God used man, and, you know, and he superintended man through the Holy, Holy Spirit to write his word, it's ultimately God's letter to us. Amen? Now, There are two sections that I want to focus on today in regards to the letters so we can become more familiar with them. These are not difficult to understand, um, but as you read 1 Timothy this week, as you read Ephesians, as you read Colossians, whatever you're reading in the Word this week, you can re-familiarize yourself, kind of refocus your attention on the format and key characteristics of the letters in the New Testament, okay? So first we're going to look at five, and I I apologize, I was going to put this on PowerPoint, but if you're taking notes, um, just two primary sections we're going to look at today. Next week, um, either I or Ronaldo are going to study more specifics, how to actually interpret a letter. And then we'll go from there to Gospels and Acts and on and on. So key characteristics of New Testament letters. This comes from the book, but we're going to expand it a little bit and look at each one, and there are five of them. Five key features you need to understand to get into the world of New Testament letters. Now, again, just like today, in the ancient world, uh, letters were very, very familiar. Uh, People, friends sent letters to each other. The most common letter form uh, back then in the ancient Near East was between government officials. Um, But there are some similarities between what you see in the New Testament letters and what you would see in an ancient letter of that time. And quite fascinatingly enough, we have 
I don't know where they're all located. I'm sure a lot of them are in museums or individuals have them. But we have over 14,000 14, extant letters from that time period of the first century. I don't, re I don't know uh, how, what years that spans, but 14,000 letters. Pretty amazing. Archaeologists are busy and uh, discovering this kind of stuff. And so we can compare and contrast as we look at ancient letters from back then compared to the New Testament letters. And you will see that there are some similarities between the ancient letters uh, during the time of Paul and Peter and Jesus um, compared to the Christian letters that we find in the Bible. Um, but one number one key feature of or key characteristic of New Testament letters compared to the ancient letters is that New Testament letters are generally longer than ancient letters. They're generally longer, and there's a reason for that. Um, not all of them. There are exceptions. The ancient letters would range from anywhere from 18 words to 209 words. I think the longest letter that we have that is the longest is by Cicero, which is close to a thousand words. Paul's letters, on the other hand, range from 335, I have the exact words here in Philemon, 335 words in Philemon to 7,114 words in the book of Romans. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians are the longest letters that we have in the New Testament. Now, why? Maybe some of you can answer this. You read the letters a lot. You think about the governmental letters that they wrote back then or letters between friends and family members. Why would the New Testament letters be longer than secular letters, if you will? What's the reason? What, what's the purpose behind the New Testament letters? What, what, what's Paul and Peter and them, what are they aiming at when they write these letters? Yeah, so you, you know, that's a very important aspect of hermeneutics is the uh, New Testament use of the Old Testament. So there are many direct quotations and allusions, not illusions, but allusions of the Old Testament in the New Testament. That's why it is foolish. There are popular teachers out there who say that we do not need to read the, the Old Testament has no bearing on our lives today as Christians. Well, that is just absolutely foolish because so much, they're building upon the Old Testament. It's continuous progressive revelation. So yeah, there's a lot of Old Testament um, illustrations and so forth in the New Testament and they have to flesh that out in the New Testament and teach. You see Paul teaching, let's say in 1 Corinthians 10, he's drawing from the life of the Israelites how we can learn from them and giving examples. Well, that takes time, right? So that's one reason. Good, good observation. What else? Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Clarity, right? They needed to articulate this is God's word while, again, God worked through these men to write his word it was still human communication and symbols in order to teach them how to live a manner worthy of the gospel. And they had to explain theology and doctrine, how to put that into practice. And, you know, they had to tack you, tackle particular issues that an individual church was dealing with, such as false teaching that was being infiltrated, that was infiltrating their church. So, yeah, what else? What are some other reasons why they would have been longer. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted to honor God in what they were writing, and they wanted to get it right, of course. Yeah. Very, very good. Um, these letters weren't... They, it, they weren't um, everyday letters. They were pastoral. They were ministerial. They were didactic. Um, Paul had to deal with, Paul um, unraveled uh, justification by faith 
in, in the book of Romans and the righteousness of God and the gospel, well, you can't really do that in 200 words. That takes time. Just like a sermon, I, I, you know, sometimes we can preach 15, 20-minute sermons, but uh, sometimes sermons need to be a little lengthier. We are talking about the words of eternal life here, and we want to get it right. So a lot of these letters were lengthy. Some were formal and some were informal. Some of the more formal letters were Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, and so forth. And some were more informal, like Philemon, right? Paul was writing to a friend, Philemon, and requesting him of receiving Onesimus back, not only as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. You have Second and Third John, where, where John is writing to the elect lady and to Gaius and, and just touching on various points that they needed to deal with in that church. But John was saying, you know what, though? I would rather see you face to face, but this is introductory, this letter. I hope to come to you soon. So yeah, most New Testament letters were longer than ancient letters. This was God's word. There needed to be a lot of things uh, taught to the Christians at that time. Number two key feature characteristic of New Testament letters is that they were authoritative substitutes for personal presence. Authoritative substitutes for personal presence. Now, what does that mean? That's kind of a, a mouthful there. Well, it's very simple. One is that the writers, the apostles, were but men. They were not omnipresent, so they couldn't be at every church at the same time. And thus, they had to compose letters, and a letter had a lot of mileage, right? We're still reading letters 2,000 years after they were written. And so they wrote letters to, say, the church in Colossae, and that letter was to be read to the people of Laodicea, the Christians in Laodicea, and it multiplied. And so the apostles couldn't be everywhere, so they wrote letters, they took time writing those letters, and then they distributed them, they dispatched them, and it got to multiple Christians. And nowadays, I mean, you know, you look at um, the history of of uh, like textual criticism or whatever, and how our Bible became what we have today. From there on out, people would copy the letters and then translate them into other languages to the point where we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. It's an embarrassment of riches of what we have today as Christians when it comes to the letters. So they were authoritative substitutes for personal presence, but the key word there is they were authoritative. This is what sets apart New Testament letters from all other letters. They were from God, ultimately. The apostles who wrote them were chosen by God. They saw the resurrected Christ, and they were representatives, ambassadors, emissaries of the Lord, and their letters carried heavenly, divine weight. So when you are reading, even though Paul wrote Ephesians and sent it to the Ephesians, even though there's some debate about was it just to the Ephesians or multiple churches, that's God's word that you're reading. That is God's and it carries authority. Um, if you read like Galatians 1.1 or Ephesians 1.1, usually that first or second verse, how do they typically begin? Well, there's a greeting, but even before the greeting, I mean, everyone's a little different, but it's usually Paul, an apostle, or servant. But for the most part, they put that they were apostles because that carried weight. You ought to listen to what I have to say because I'm, on a, cho I'm a chosen messenger by God being directed by the Holy Spirit through this letter. Okay, so they were authoritative substitutes. The word all scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. While that primarily relates to the Old Testament, of course, we see in places like 2 Peter chapter 3.15.16, right around there, Peter talks about Paul's letters as being the very word of God or like scripture, challenging to understand, but they are understandable if we study them and, and seek to know what they say. So authoritative substitutes. Um, 
And because they were authoritative and because the apostles were the primary authors, they could, as apostles, command the people based on their delegated authority from God. They could command them to obey. They exhorted them. They warned them. They taught them. And they taught the truth. They taught right doctrine and theology. Okay, number three. Number three, third characteristic of New Testament letters. And this one's also extremely important. They were situational. They were situational. Or, to put it another way, they were occasional. There was a purpose for why each letter was composed. Okay, you read a, a letter like Galatians, it's quite obvious from the outset why Paul wrote Galatians. In fact, Galatians is unique compared to the other letters because Paul forgoes any official greeting and gets right to it. Pretty much, who has bewitched you? What, what's wrong with you, Galatians? Why are you being bamboozled, you know, uh, deceived by the Judaizers? You have a freedom in Christ that they cannot offer. I mean, he warns them. It's a warning letter. Um, you read 1 Corinthians. It's, it's pretty obvious why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He's tackling some major issues in that church from sin, from immorality, from uh, division and, and factions and so forth to answering questions that the particular uh, Corinthians had. So the letters were situational. They were specific. There was a point, a purpose. You know, Paul didn't just sit down one day and go, you know, I'm going to write them just a letter from me. I mean, he did that, but you know what I'm saying? There was something spurred him on to write 1 Corinthians, Romans, um, and so forth. Um, you have books like Jude. He wanted to tackle false teachers. He initially wanted to write about their common salvation. But he said, you know what? There's false doctrine that is coming into this church. There are false teachers. Let me, let me uh, inform you about the characteristics about these false teachers so you can spot them and root them out of the church. Okay? Um, while you're reading the letters, try to figure out the primary themes of the letters. What is Paul, Peter, John, James, and so forth, what are they getting at in their letter? You have to, I'll look, talk about this in a second, you have to reconstruct because we weren't there. Sometimes, have you ever been there where you're reading a letter and you're just like, what, what is Paul talking about here? What does he mean being baptized for the dead <laughs> in 1 Corinthians 15? I mean, that, that has baffled theologians and interpreters for, for decades and centuries. I mean, there's just some things like head coverings. We're, we, we, we might not exactly know what the situation was back then or what were the conversations going on between Paul and the Christians. You understand? And so we, we have this chasm between us and we have to reconstruct and figure out from the language in the letters what's really going on in this scenario and why is Paul or Peter addressing them. So yeah, we have to reconstruct the scenarios, the culture. We have to understand the culture. I believe Ronaldo talked about understanding culture and geography and even the government at that time. You know, Romans 13 um, and so forth. We have, to, we have to understand the situation of the letter. Don't just dive in and parachute in in the middle of a letter to try to figure it out. Have you ever gotten a long letter from someone and do you ever start from the middle of the letter? and say, oh man, I just have no idea what this person is talking about. Or, I think they give this example in the book, or one of the books I was reading, about a telephone call. Right? It's, if you're listening to someone talking on the phone, you can only hear what that person is saying, not the person on the other line, unless they're on speaker, of course. But you're trying to figure out why this person is telling the person on the other lines X, Y, and Z information. You don't have the whole story. Well, it's similar to us when we read the letters. We have to figure out the situation, the culture, the people, um, the issue that is being addressed. 
Okay, and one way to do that, and Ronaldo had a bunch of books up here about two months ago, I think, is by reading commentaries, reading atlases, reading uh, histories, New Testament introductions. This will help you put together the pieces of the puzzle so you can understand why Paul wrote, say, 2 Corinthians. Why is Paul defending his apostolic authority and ministry in 2 Corinthians? Okay, so number one of the five key features, uh, longer than ancient letters of that time. Number two, authoritative substitutes for personal presence. Number three, they're situational, they're occasional. Oh, and I, I want to add one other thing to that situational point. We have to be careful not to approach the letters as if they are systematic theologies. The letters contain theology. They contain deep theology. I know we've all been going through Colossians. I mean, you look at especially chapter 1, the preeminence and su superiority and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is rich, is it not? But is that exhaustive? Is, is Paul writing about everything that he possibly could about the supremacy of Christ in Colossians chapter 1? No, it's not a system, he's not, it's not a Wayne Grudem systematic theology. So while we're reading the letters, we still have to apply the analogy of faith. We still have to look at cross-references and draw from the other portions of scripture to be able to put together the pieces of theology, okay? So you take 1 Thessalonians 4, which points to an aspect of the rapture about meeting Christ in the air, but does every, is everything about the rapture explained in 1 Thessalonians 4? No. We can go to other parts of Scripture, like maybe John 14 or the end of 1 Corinthians 5 or whatever. Okay, So don't approach the letters as if they're an exhaustive, point-by-point -point biblical doctrine or systematic theology. They contain theology, rich theology, deep theology, but we have to understand why Paul is writing about the supremacy or superiority of Christ in Colossians. Why, what is he addressing there? Well, there was false teaching coming in. There was Gnosticism coming in. And he had to point out that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ because he ultimately is God. Okay, And he had to, he had to exhort them in that. Okay, number four. The New Testament letters were carefully written and delivered. They were carefully written and they were delivered. Again, it's not like it's not like the Quran, let's say, which um, Muslims believe came from, you know, pretty much dropped out of the sky. Uh, Gabriel revealed everything word for word in dictation form um, from Gabriel that came from Allah. Uh, the, the New Testament was carefully written and delivered. There was a thought process in it. It didn't just, the letters didn't just appear on a piece of paper or papyrus or scroll. Uh, it, took, it was a big deal writing a letter back then. We're so used to, just the other day, I, I bought at Costco 800 pieces of printer paper for $8. Thank you, Costco. But back then, Writing, they didn't have that. They had to use papyrus. I mean, they had to, it, uh, one letter could cost thousands of dollars in today's economy. Inflation. Maybe, it it, maybe it will cost that much one day. <laughs> but it cost a lot of money and it was a big deal and took time. They didn't just get out their laptops and send. Okay? They didn't have pens like us or emails or lots of paper. The United States Postal Office. They usually use secretaries to write the letters. Now, when I say that, what, what, what do you automatically think of when you hear the word secretary, right? A, a person with you know, a headset, a computer, sitting at a desk, taking phone calls. Back then, secretaries were like scribes, or I love this word. They were, they were like an amanuensis. It's a great word. <laughs> Scribes, they usually wrote the letter for the person who was dictating what they ought to write. Sometimes it was a word-for-word -word dictation, and sometimes the person who was composing the letter would 
have a theme or would say it out loud and the writer, the, the scribe, would write it even in their own words. That's why books like, or letters like Second Peter, there are some scholars, liberal scholars, or even First and Second Timothy, sometimes uh, there are people who say, well, those were not written by those apostles. They're pseudo, they're false letters. And because Peter's, the writing in Second Peter is different, the, the language is different than First Peter. You know, Peter was a humble fisherman. He didn't have this high form of Greek that we see in Second Peter. Well, that's pretty easy to answer because they had scribes, and scribes were very well trained. They knew grammar, they knew the Greek language, and uh, sometimes they took what Peter would have been saying and put it into a higher form of Greek. That's one possible reason for why um, Second Peter might sound different than First Peter. And so they had secretaries. Consider Romans 16, verse 22. Romans 16, 22. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Huh? I thought Paul wrote Romans. But he used that scribe to help him write Romans. Or what about this? 1 Corinthians 16, 21. I, Paul, write this greeting. This greeting, this is at the end, in my own hand. So he probably didn't write all of 1 Corinthians with his own hand. He would have used an amanuensis or a scribe. 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Okay? So they had secretaries. They also had co-senders or dispatchers. If you read a lot of the end portions of the letters, you see that Paul would use friends in Christ, ministerial partners to send the letters out like Timothy and Silvanus and Sosthenes. You see Sosthenes, if I'm saying that correctly, in 1 Corinthians who sent out the letters. Again, Paul couldn't be everywhere. So he had his own personal ministerial mailmen to send the letters and they had an authoritative stamp on them because they were sent by the apostle. And oftentimes, they too probably helped Paul draft, write, and edit the letters. This was a ministry, a ministry in which they were a part. Um, I don't have time. We only have about eight, nine minutes left. Um, but write these two verses down, uh, passages down. You can go and look at them that talk about these co-senders. Ephesians chapter 6, 21 to 22. Ephesians 6, 21, 22. And Colossians 4, Colossians 4, 7 and 9. And you'll get an idea of how these letters were written and sent and read aloud um, to the Christian community. All right, finally, number five, a key characteristic of New Testament letters is that the letters were intended for the Christian community. Right, these letters were not written for the whole world, so to speak, even though they have gone out into the world, okay? Um, they've gone out all over Asia Minor and Europe at that time, and thankfully we have the letters now in the United States of America in our Bibles. But ultimately they were intended for the Christian community. Paul was not writing letters to Caesar or to Herod or to the Pharisees. He was writing to Christians. They were addressed to believers, to specific churches in specific regions. To the church of Colossae, who is in Christ. To the Ephesians, who are in Christ. To the Corinthians, who are sanctified, who are made holy, who are in Christ. These were churches, and sometimes these letters went from Ephesians to the Laodiceans. They were read all over the Christian world and spread. Okay, now we're not used to that in our day and age. Usually what do we do every day? We sit down with our cup of coffee at 7 a.m., open up our Bible and read these letters alone until we come maybe to church on Sunday or to a Bible study throughout the week and we read them together. But back then, the letters were read corporately, together, amongst each other, publicly. They you know, Paul didn't write to this person and this person and this person and this person. 
they were mostly read aloud. A lot of the Christians back then were illiterate. They couldn't read. And so they had to listen to it verbally, orally, read to them. All right? Um, Revelation 1.3, for example. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Colossians 4.16. After this letter has been read to you, See that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. 1 Thessalonians 5.27 I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So this is how... Christian truth was communicated back then through letter and then read to all, to the Christian community. Even when you read letters like Philemon and Timothy, even though they're directed to a particular person, you'll often read, especially in Philemon right away uh, at the top, that he also addresses the families who meet in the churches, in the local churches. At the end of 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy, when Paul uses the word you, it's in the plural, y'all, Okay, so they, they, Texas wasn't around back then, so they couldn't use y'all. So in the Greek, there was you singular and you plural. And the letters were circulated, and like I said earlier, copied, distributed, and translated to other languages. But aren't, shouldn't you and I be so thankful that we have these letters in our hand? I was talking to, I think, Jordan the other yesterday and he was talking about how he has a bible at home he keeps one in his car he and one i forgot where the other place was is jordan where there you are nightstand right i mean that's so amazing that we can have a bible in almost every room of our house and have immediate access to it they didn't have that back then okay <sighs> ronaldo i know how you feel when you look at that clock and you still have more to teach and there's only two minutes left. Um, right now I'm like the book of Romans, a longer letter. Uh, I think we could probably pick up on this next week um, because as we get into more specifics about the layout or the format of the letters, but let me give you a, a foretaste. Um, right now you have the five features, the five characteristics of the letters, so go back and study those, and when you read New Testament letters this week, look at it differently. Look at it with those characteristics. But let me just give you this, and then we will finish for today. Um, there, there's a particular, for the most part, layout for each of the letters, and this is very easy, and if you look at your book, I, I don't know if the key words are in there. I was using the study guide. But in chapter 9, there are three key words in terms of the format of New Testament letters. And that is simply, each letter typically has an introduction, number one. Number two, there's a body, which is the main uh, portion of the letter. And number three, there is a conclusion. That's easy to remember, right? Now, there are exceptions out there, right? You read the book of Hebrews and it's like, the, it's like a sermon. It's like the author could not wait to get jump right into his content. And he just said, you know what, I'm going to forget about the introduction. God, in many times, in many ways, through the Father, spoke long ago. But now he's speaking through Jesus Christ, the Son. You know, you have First John, which doesn't have the standard greeting or salutation, grace to you, um, and so forth. You know, but he talks about Jesus, who they saw in the flesh, and they could see and hear, and they heard him speak. But most letters of the New Testament have an introduction, which contains a greeting, a prayer. It contains who wrote the letter. It contains the recipients of the letter. There's a prayer. There's an element of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. And that you'll see in most of Paul's letters, save for Galatians. The other ones, yeah. And then there's the body, which is what we most focus on. Right, which is the theology, the teaching, the warnings, the exhortation, the encouragement. And then there's the conclusion, which contains a benediction, a doxology, travel plans, um, greetings to other brothers and sisters, informing people to 
uh, share a holy kiss with one another. So this is the basic format of New Testament letters, intro, uh, body, inclusion, conclusion. And next week, we will look at that more. And uh, I don't know what they have in Journey into God's Word. It might be uh, an excerpt from Hebrews that we'll study. But we will continue with more of the New Testament epistles, letters. Those are uh, changeable words. And, um, but this week, let me encourage you to do something. Um, the letters are pretty easy to, in one sitting to read it all the way through from beginning to end. So take a letter, whether it's Colossians or Philippians or even the book of Romans, which t- would take a little longer, and read it all the way through. It might take you a half hour, 45 minutes. And read the new, that New Testament letter every single day this week. And you'll become very familiar with the themes, with the flow of argument, with the language, and you will have that letter very much memorized. In fact, John MacArthur recommends taking a short book like that and reading it every day for a month. And by day 30, Ephesians is going to be your best friend or whatever book it is. You'll know it inside and out. And look at these letters differently than maybe you have in light of what we've been learning in this book and really become familiar with these uh, words of God to us in letter form. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is alive. These aren't dead letters of antiquity that have no meaning or purpose to our lives. These are the very word of God, a double-edged sword. They are God-breathed. They, are, they were wrought by the Holy Spirit, although you carried men along by the Spirit and used their distinct personalities to write these letters, we can be assured that when we open Romans, Corinthians, James, Jude, whatever, that this is God's word speaking to us. So we thank you, Lord, that we have the ability this morning to learn more about the letters and how they speak to us and the composition and the unique uh, uh, distinctions and characteristics of these letters. May we continue to be students of your word, avid students, voracious readers of your word. And um, like we learned last week, Lord, may we not just fill our heads with knowledge, but yes, may we renew our minds for the transformation of our very lives, but may we take what we've learned and apply them to our walk in Christ fully dependent on the Spirit of God to transform us. So I thank you for everyone here who um, came, and Lord, may we take what we've learned and and put it into practice and continue to read uh, your word with hearts receptive to you and worshiping you, and bless the rest of our fellowship today and the worship service and the preaching of your word. And it's in Christ's holy and precious and magnificent name that we pray. Amen.